Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hello and welcome to the Farm Traveler Podcast. I'm your host, Trevor Williams. And today on the show, we're going to be learning about a job that makes the job of a farmer a whole lot easier. We're going to be chatting with Christy Apple, who is an agronomist, and basically an agronomist, or aka also known as um, a crop scientist, is somebody who specializes in different crop production, soil control, soil management. Basically, they help farmers in different areas, different states, different regions, grow different crops, specifically um, what's going to work well on their farm with their soil types and stuff like that. And so Christy's going to talk to us today about her background, how it wasn't in agriculture and how while she was in college, she actually decided on a career shift and focused right into agronomy because she loved it. She was super passionate about it. And kind of like she said, um, she liked to geek out about soil health and stuff like that. And really what it looks like focusing on soil health, how there's been a shift lately where more farmers are trying to pay careful attention to the health of the soil so they can have healthier crops. And we'll also dive into the process of how Christy goes about creating growing strategies for different farmers, specifically for different crops that they're growing and all the soil types and all that good stuff. And we'll also chat about the different crops she worked on, like apples, potatoes, um, grapes, and also hemp, which is really interesting because we're really going to talk more about kind of the future of hemp and what that looks like in terms of like building material, um, biodegradable plastic, stuff like that. And lastly, we're going to end on a very interesting topic, which is kind of controversial, and that is on carbon credits. So um, some farmers are for it, some aren't. And so it's very interesting to hear Christie's takes and how um, carbon credits are really being viewed by people in the industry and also how they're being viewed by people outside the industry by, you know, large corporations that really want other people to do the work in terms of 
reducing their impact on the environment. So that's a really interesting topic. So whenever the podcast is over, be sure to check out Christy at the links below the description of this episode. And if you enjoyed it, if you learned a thing or two, consider sharing it with a friend or family member. That always helps us out and helps spread the message of Farm Traveler. So thanks so much for listening and hope you enjoy the episode. All right. Well, Christy Apple, welcome to the Farm Traveler podcast. How are you doing? Hi, Trevor. Thanks for the invitation. I'm doing great today. Yeah, I am. I'm super excited to chat with you, as I was telling you earlier. I love learning about agronomy because, I mean, I feel like agronomists are kind of the jack of all trades when it comes to um, careers in agriculture, which, I mean, of course, if you're in agriculture, you're pretty much a jack of all trades. So kind of tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became an agronomist. Yeah, so, you know, it's so silly to just sit back and think about the, the career that I've had. You know, I, I hit 42 this year, um, great years on this planet, and I get to, you know, proudly share that, you know, for at least 24 years of my life, I've been in the professional world in one way, shape, or another. And how I got started in agronomy is kind of a funny story, in fact. I didn't go to school for agriculture. I do not carry a crop and soil science degree, much to the dismay of many of my peers. Um, I think that that we've kind of over glamorized the um, the concept of a degree gets you somewhere. It does get you somewhere, but not always where you want to be. In fact, my direction in my path was business. So business administration um, is where I ended up through my college. But I first thought that I was going to start out as a as a um, a pharmacist, right? That was my dream as a little girl. I loved science. I loved um, plant physics, human physiology and anatomy. I was super interested in the sciences. That was my path. In fact, I had accepted a, a position in the pre-med program to become a pharmacist at Ferris State University a long, long time ago. And you know how we kind of get that feeling that life is going to take us in a different direction. And then you take one step in one direction and the dominoes start tumbling. Well, that was kind of my story. I ended up not pursuing um, pharmacy. I switched over to business um, for, for family reasons, right? So that suited my life at that time much better. And because I was naturally a communicator, I was naturally gifted at sales. I always loved that piece of any of the classes that I took. In fact, I took business classes kind of for fun, shall we say? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, what I just didn't realize at that time was at my very heart, I love connecting with people even more than I love the science. And so I spent my 20s raising my children and working in various sales um, situations and marketing uh, for a company that was producing marketing content. I really, really enjoyed that. It gave me a chance to build relationships with businesses, finding out what motivated them to do certain things for their business, how they were connecting with their clients, how they were discovering what was making them tick. So in 20 or 2008, an opportunity for me to leave the career that I had been building and take a similar uh, similar role, but just in a different industry, I stepped over into the ag industry. And I told my bosses at the time, I said, listen, guys, I can do this job for you and I'll do it well. But I'll tell you, if I'm not selling within a year, I'm not going to be happy. I don't know why, but that is just how I am. And they said, all right, well, we'll see how you do. We'll give you some opportunities and see how fast you pick this up. So immediately I started getting mentored in agronomy in a hands-on way, in a vocational context. So for me, I didn't have to go to college to learn what I learned. I was getting real world experience. I was learning from seasoned veterans, experienced agronomists. And then in my free time and every chance that I had, 
I was diving into extension opportunities, um, meetings and, and, you know, webinars and things that I could expand my knowledge on topics like soil health, topics like plant nutrition, topics like herbicides, you know, pouring over these books and manuals and trying to understand how these things all work together. So when I entered into the ag industry, it was as a student, technically speaking, I was earning a living handling one piece of business, but what I was doing was building a lifestyle for myself and my family to just really enjoy what I was doing and fulfill that inner science nerd that loved physiology, loved physics, loved the, the science components of that. And I was able to marry my people building skills along with my, you know, my inner nerd and um, build a really amazing career in agronomy. So since then, I've been building my online identity as Crop Scout Christy, as well as my in-person identity as Christy Apple, your agronomist, your soil health advocate, and your partner on the farm here locally in central Michigan. That's so cool. And I, I mean, I think that you brought up some really good points. Like, I mean, if you get your 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 degree in something, it's totally okay to change your mind. Like I did the same thing. Um, I mean, you never really know where life's going to take you and what passions you're going to find later on in life. And so that's cool that you found it, that um, agronomy was really your passion, something you like to do and something that you really got a lot of hands on um, learning. So tell us a little bit more about like what exactly is the job of an agronomist? So an agronomy in the traditional context is essentially helping provide farmers and producers, agricultural producers, with tools and resources that are solutions oriented. So we have this concept that agronomy is just sales. It's not just sales. That is a piece of it. There are people that have a, a, a role in ag retail called sales agronomists, right? So they take their ability to understand the cropping system that they're influencing. They take the ability to build relationships with the farmer. And then they take the, the tools and resources that are out there and available to feed the crop, to protect the crop, and to you know, whatever that might be, um, harvest the crop and do that in a way with an economic focus, right? So the goal is to keep farmers in business, utilizing the technologies and, and tools that we have out there available for us. So I think that that's like a very basic technical description of it. But to me, it's so much more. In my journey as an agronomist, having not started out my journey in a, in a classroom in college at, at Michigan State Crop Soils, I didn't have built-in biases. I didn't have this concept that this is what we've always done, so this is what we're going to do, right? I had a different focus. As I began my learning journey, I started out talking to people about seaweed extracts and humic acids and, uh, you know, inorganic N versus organic N, meaning nitrogen. You know, just a completely different conversation was taking place in the way that I learned was with a soil health focus and leveraging the ability of the soil and its its native ability to release nutrients, to cycle nutrients, to infiltrate water, to to do what the crop needed us to do. So as I began, you know, that journey, um, you know, and as as traditional agronomists are trained, you learn how to make that crop work and with a maximum yield for a maximum economic return for the farmer. What I thought we were kind of missing, which I didn't realize till later, was kind of the focus on the soil. What's the cost mm. of the soil? So for me, my agronomy journey started out as a soil health advocate before I was ever an agronomist. And I appreciate that more today than I ever did. Even back then, 
as I look back on that, realizing I was one of those people thinking about weird and strange strategies to grow crops that are kind of not really mainstream. And, um, and I'll admit, I pissed a lot of people off, especially my peers, because I had just reckless abandon for trying these things. And I was getting farmers to, you know, I was convincing farmers to try, dip your toe in the water of some type of regenerative practice, dip your toe in the water of, you know, leveraging the, na the natural ability of the soil instead of having this arrogant concept that we have to supply everything. I mean, we're not feeding the fence rows. We're not applying fertilizers to the forests, right? So how is those, how are those systems thriving without human intervention? And it really got me thinking and really, really inspired me to just always have that filter and that lens as I'm approaching or tackling agronomy to look at that from a soil health first perspective or point of view. So agronomists have a really unique role in where we have so much influence on what's taking place on the farm. We also, some of us have the pressure to sell some of us have, you know, different focuses, different cropping systems we focus on. But at the end of the day, we want to prosper the farmer and we want to create food in a way that is minimally damaging to our environment and maximally impacting in a positive way whoever's consuming that, whether it be, you know, our corn and soybeans for livestock or whether that be our fruits and vegetables for human consumption. Now, that's really interesting because I feel like the past couple of years, I mean, maybe even decade, there's been this huge shift of kind of what you're talking about, where more and more farmers are paying attention to the soil health instead of just like pumping in fertilizer after fertilizer. Because, I mean, first off, that's super expensive. And then second off, it's not good for the soil. So what do you kind of contribute to that huge shift where more people are paying attention to the importance of soil? Because if, you have, if you've got great soil you're going to have some great crops afterwards. So what do you contribute that to? I think that, you know, the, that there's an, there's an interest, and I'll call it in quotations, a hunger um, for doing things in a way that, that makes more sense and is more efficient, mm. right? We, we have to be more efficient. There's fewer and fewer farms, own, owned farms now. Back in the day, you know, once upon a time, a farm was feeding its family. Mm -hmm. Now, today, a farm is feeding 156 people, right? When, the, when you know, you look at the statistical impact of every single farm, as our farms have gotten larger, and in some cases, less diversified, the, the pressure to be more efficient is much more pronounced. Mm. So as our farms need to be more efficient, we're looking at, you know, larger equipment to do things with fewer people. We're trying to be efficient with our fuel, efficient with our other, you know, tools and inputs that we're utilizing on the farm. And I think part of that shift as these, you know, as our farms are technically feeding more mouths than they ever have in the history of, of the earth, I think that the pressure there to be more efficient has become more and more pronounced. Simultaneously, we're also receiving messages and signals from people that are monitoring things like, you know, climate change and the impact of soil loss and some of the, you know, some of the challenges and risks that go along with farming, right? One of those risks is erosion risks. You know, there was a, a dust bowl two generations ago because we had nothing holding the, the soil down, right? And even, you know, we've even experienced some dust bowl-like events in the Great Plains over the more recent years because 
it, there's just so much land there with nothing on it for a, a long period of time in, a, in the course of a, a season, in the course of a year. And so I think some of these things have started to inspire people to say, what can I do to manage some of those risks? Because if I still have to stay efficient and this risk is causing me to not be efficient in one way or another. So I think some implementing some soil health practices or at least the expansion of those soil health conversations has been partially motivated by that. Um, it's become a very politicized um, concept also. Um, and, and there's a lot of scare tactics that have been kind of put in play and employed um, to plan people's emotions. And so therefore the, the general population that isn't farming has felt you know, somewhat empowered to give input to farmers on what they want. And so there's some consumer demand things that are impacting this, um, particularly, you know, with like the, the food processing giants of the world, right? You think about the huge food companies, the Cargills, the Nestle's, the, you know, these massive companies that have a footprint on lots of different continents that are saying, hey, look, we're trying to do this better. And we don't really know what better is, but we know that this is the direction we need to be going. And so this has kind of, you know, prompted some of these, some food labeling things and, you know, some different tactics and some different strategies to help encourage farmers to head that direction. Although some of it's been, you know, a little misguided in my opinion, I think by and large, there's just really no harm that can come from implementing soil health practices. And one of those things, you know, as you mentioned, you know, Fertility inputs, for example, are very expensive, especially this season. This is is insane how how high fuel and, and fertilizer prices are. But when we're implementing some of these soil health strategies, what we're starting to see is we have actually less dependence on those synthetic products. Those synthetic fertility strategies are no longer necessary if we are providing, you know, diversity and cover crops and helping with soil um, soil recovery. Our soils can actually supply a lot of the nutrients that are required for pr production. So, you know, these biodynamic systems um, and, and other systems that are implementing regenerative practices such as rotational grazing, um, biodiversity or root diversity, all of these things naturally impact how those soils will respond. So, you know, although it's been kind of a long journey, I think the push to be efficient and to be profitable is naturally opening the door to usher in the re-implementation of soil health practices that were commonplace 150 years ago. So that's so interesting. Now, I mean, kind of going off of that, like, is this some stuff that you'll bring up if you're trying to kind of, I guess, really kind of convert a farmer that might be kind of not wanting to pay attention to soil health? Are, are these like a lot of those topics that you'd bring up to them? Like, hey, there's a lot less inputs. Um, there's so much more impact it can have on the environment, like beneficially, if you if you focus on the soil health. So if you're trying to convert a farmer to pay attention to soil health, what are some stuff that you're going to bring up to them? So I think every single farm, um, you know, any farmer you visit with is going to naturally have their take on where they feel they're most vulnerable. And having a conversation with a farmer about what areas of risk they feel most exposed, right? So some people might have, you know, an issue with with um, weed resistance being their weakest link. We're farming in an area where we cannot get control of these specific weeds and it's causing us tremendous amount of yield loss mm -hmm. and a huge amount of energy and effort and, and financial resources to manage it. So there's a risk scenario that is no longer palatable for that farm. And so maybe there's a strategy 
within the soil health wheel, wheelhouse, mm-hmm. that could potentially help to resolve that or reduce some of that vulnerability there, right? So another risk exposure point would be water infiltration. Once upon a time, and I've heard this multiple times in our area, you know, in, in my area, we have, uh, we're at the, the far western edge of the Saginaw Valley, kind of draining eastward towards the Saginaw Bay in, in, the Mich- in Michigan. So about 65 miles east of us is the Saginaw Bay. But we slowly decline all the way down to that spot, right? So I still live kind of in the hilly, hilly areas or potato country. And as we go towards the bay, the ground kind of tapers off and, and there's very little, um, you know, there's very little slope. It's just a very slope grade um, or small grade. Water infiltration, flooding and um, nutrients and soil leaving the farms has become a huge issue in these watershed regions. Right. We're we're we are applying nutrients. We experience a huge rain event. It takes our nutrients and soil down the watersheds and into our bay, creating algal blooms and other impacts on our ecology and our water sources. So there's another area of, of vulnerability that perhaps implementing one of our soil health principles like cover crops, diversity of root systems that could retain soil and retain nutrients in the farm or help improve water infiltration would maybe reduce the risk of that. So instead of beating somebody upside the head with a two by four labeled soil health, my approach is always to start a conversation around areas that that farmer is looking to improve upon and why. Why do they want to improve upon that? There's no farm in America that doesn't have a vulnerability that they'd be willing to visit with you about. And so that's a, that's a great way to start that conversation and then kind of look at it through that filter of soil health and see if maybe there's a strategy sitting there that would improve or reduce their risk or improve their outcomes in some way, shape or form. And then bam, you're on the road to your soil health journey. Now, I bet coming up with those strategies are super complicated because I mean, not only is every farm different, I mean, you're working with countless different crops that have different nutrient requirements, different soil types, the nutrients that are in that soil. And so, I mean, what's that process like of building up that strategy making it as customized as possible for that farmer, those crops, that area. Um, I mean, I'm sure that's a huge headache, but obviously probably a really good challenge also. It is a really fun challenge. I think that's where that inner science nerd for me and my like voracious hunger to build relationships really serves me well. Um, You know, building, understanding what the farmer system looks like right now before we make any changes is really critical, right? So you know, understanding where we're at as a baseline and then mapping out the steps to get you to where you want to be or at least get you farther down the road is is kind of the big challenge, right? So, you know, yes, the crop diversity puts, you know, some different challenges on, but essentially the, the areas of vulnerability are relatively the same in all cropping systems. Mm. You're either dealing with too much slope or too little slope, You're either dealing with poor infiltration or excessive infiltration. You're, you know, like you pretty much farmers across America, regardless of its wine grapes or if it's corn or if it's hops, whatever that may be, you're going to have like these standard five issues that all farmers are facing. So where the nuance comes into play is what their cultural practices are and what resources or capital are they willing to shift around to implement those practices, right? So for a row crop farmer in the Midwest, he would like to implement cover crops 
that may mean he needs to give up some tillage. That may mean he needs to, you know, sell a piece of equipment, but buy a different one in its place that he can roll and crimp some rye and get a weed mat down to help get control of certain things. Mm, Okay. Right. So it isn't always about just saving money, right? It isn't always just about eliminating something bad. In many situations, right? Like this is a vacuum. We have to do something. So we're going to do things that have more impact in the areas we want to serve. So if we're struggling with keeping nutrients and soil in the fields, then we need to start looking at some boundaries, maybe planting some buffer strips that would prevent erosion and utilizing either a permanent crop of, you know, annual ryegrass or some other type of um, some other type of fibrous root structure that would help us achieve those goals. And that can be true in a cornfield. That can be true in a grape vineyard. That can be true in, you know, lots of different systems and scenarios. Maybe we have soils that are dead and and poor from repeated pesticide application and they're just beat to death. Maybe we just need to recover some soil. So that may look like multi-species cover crops planted after wheat, right? So maybe, you know, you're going to have to not plant what you thought you were going to plant and take a chunk of your rotation and say, okay, this 100 acres, we're going to plant a cover crop variety or a a multi-species cover crop variety on that farm to help recover that soil. My biological activity is very, very diminished. But at the very fundamental part of this, we need to establish baselines with soil farm data. Things like, you know, cultural practices obviously are part of that. But also talking about soil sampling, it's hard to believe, but even in this 2022, we still have farms that are not soil sampling on any kind of precision basis or maybe sampling, but not making farm decisions with that data. They're just doing it to check a box and not really utilizing it or leveraging that. So that's something that a, that a soil health consultant like myself can really come into to play and helping to utilize data collection apps or software, or maybe even establishing a relationship um, with a farm in that way and do some Haney testing, right? Let's get a soil health assessment and see where you're at. Maybe you're good. Maybe your vulnerability is a perceived vulnerability. Maybe there's an underlying problem that you don't know about that things like the soil health assessments through the Haney testing methodology could maybe reveal. So it's kind of, you know, you have to collect that data and build that relationship there. Again, it goes back to that kind of communication to help discover exactly what is the root of the of that vulnerability. And then we can strategize from there. Kind of like to use like a whiteboard to do that, right? <laughs> oh, this- I can imagine. Yeah, I bet that helps yeah. out a lot. Yeah, just like imagine this giant whiteboard and and this is our one problem. We're going to make a whole decision tree from that. And sometimes things work and sometimes they don't. But having an open mind and and at least being willing to have those conversations is is really neat to be able to, you know, help problem solve a farm and empower them to make better decisions for for themselves and for their future. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's really good that a lot of farmers are willing to try new strategies, whether it's just for, you know, improving soil health, helping out the environment, helping them produce more or, or diversify their operations. That's all really good to hear. And I'm kind of moving along, like, tell us a little bit about all the different crops you work for. I, I know on your Instagram, you list things like apples, grapes, hemp, and stuff like that. So what what all crops do you have experience working for? And like any any cool little factoids about what practices you might implement for those crops? Yeah, so I really got my start um, because I, I'm a vocationally trained agronomist. I got my start in corn and soybeans. 
just traditional row crop, right? Alfalfa, you know, um, wheat and sugar beets, a little bit of dry beans and a little bit of pickles. Those were the base crops of the foundation of my career. So the first half of my career in agriculture, I really dove hard into those traditional row crops. So that's where I've gotten my foundational, you know, functional conversational ability on row crop things. I loved doing that. And it was a wonderful way. There's a lot of documentation out there for me to learn and to educate myself on herbicide programs, impact of, you know, seed agronomy and technology developments and all of that. And then about five and a half years ago, I had an opportunity to jump into hops um, as a, as kind of a project. And that was a really fun adventure for me. I had to learn a new crop. I had to learn a new cropping system right? So it isn't just the plant physiology and anatomy I need to understand, but also how is this farm cultivating this crop? How is this farm spraying, managing disease and pests? How is this farm harvesting? And what are the things that are most important to them? Because they're not measuring bushels, right? They're measuring other things. They're measuring terpenes and flavor, uh, flavonoids and fragrance, uh, you know, these compounds that are like we don't even discuss that in traditional row crop. So in these other specialty crop markets, they're measuring success on several different levels. So that was a really fun um, first year adventure, which has resulted in maintaining relationships with hops producers all over the Midwest. In fact, I'm one of the few agronomists around that really spend a lot of time scouting and, and consulting for. Um, there's a few little specialty crop clusters around the Great Lakes that have a, an agronomist here or there that gets involved, but it's not very common. Um, it's a very small community and it's a lot of fun to, to work in. A majority of our hops are grown in Washington, a little dab in Oregon, and then of course here around the Great Lakes. And then you'll have like little teeny micro pockets in New York. And there's a couple of growers in New Mexico that grow um, hops, you know, and, um, and one of my favorite fat hashtags that I developed, in fact, I think I'm the only one that's still using it in Instagram, world today is hashtag hops are crops, right? <laughs> so I love sharing about that. I always get a ton of engagement whenever I share that on my stories or a post, um, just because even corn and soybean farmers are sort of interested to know that, you know, the bush, the John Deere bush light that they're throwing back right now is actually being impacted by wheat, corn, barley, hops, whatever <laughs> it might be, right? So that's always been, uh, you know, that's maintained a special place in my heart is one of my first specialty crops to really get uh, d dive into deeply. Um, today, my space, um, I, I spent a lot of time in the cannabis world, whether that be cannabis for marijuana production or cannabis for industrial hemp production. Again, very few agronomy people brave enough to take steps in those directions. A lot of the um, high, you know, very talented and very educated grower consultants or growing consultants for that space have come out of the shadows, right? Because it had been scheduled, um, you know, a schedule one uh, controlled substance for so many years. You know, these people have had to operate kind of behind the scenes, right? Just because it was illegal doesn't mean it wasn't being cultivated. And so that education from that era has translated forward. That's also why there's a lack of education in people that are doing true agronomy today, right? Because it was illegal. We weren't spending time on educating agronomists at college on how to you know, grow cannabis because 
it was illegal. <laughs> so <laughs> we, we have this little gap in the supply chain of education <laughs> out there. So um, I've learned a ton from some really talented people that have spent a lifetime with respect to that plant, both whether it be either side of the cannabis world. Um, and, you know, I've had a lot of fun in the industrial hemp space. Um, this last couple of years has been wildly fruitful and very hectic and fun watching this industry get its feet underneath itself, which it still has not yet, by the way. That's a story for another day, I think. But <laughs> you know, <laughs> no. th that's really interesting whenever you talk about it, because I mean, I've been watching it like, you know, once hemp was, I guess, legalized or whatever. It, that's such a good point, though, that really nobody was trained about it in college. So people were learning on the job really yeah. how to do it because nobody had actually like learned about it formally. Right. That's absolutely right. So this transfer of knowledge on how to do this in a way that's, you know, that the tenets of agronomy are to provide the best technologies, the best resources and tools with the best economic outcome for that farmer. And so a lot of, you know, a lot of that knowledge is still, you know, very tightly held to the chest. And um, so it's taken a lot of blood, sweat and tears for me personally to continue to educate myself. And I, I do spend a lot of my personal time, you know, following blogs, watching YouTubes, educating myself, reaching out on LinkedIn to these other, you know, people in the industry and just the networking side of things has been just very fruitful to help me develop as, as an agronomist that has good information that I can back up with with real world experience now, but it just it takes time, um, you know, and I'm not sure exactly where all these, you know, exactly where the hemp industry is going to be in five or 10 or 30 years. But I'm very, very excited to see the industrial uses of hemp become part of the, you know, the, the marquee of that instead of the CBD side of things having been the marquee initially. Now we're finally realizing that you know, CBD has a long way to go. We still have a lot of regulatory question marks there. And until those things get resolved, it's just not going to launch like we had hoped it would. Um, however, on the industrial side of things, you know, where we're using a completely different cultivar that looks wildly different than what we than what we think a CBD plant or a marijuana plant should look like, um, you know, and it's planted like wheat and it's harvested like hay. Like, can you imagine the opportunities that are sitting there? So as, you know, as your imagination is kind of rolling around what that looks like in a field, you know, in the meantime, the there's there's coalitions and professional groups that are working on advocating for the use case of hemp in equine feed and in other animal feed products and in human consumption, the, the grain is super nutritious and it's considered a superfood in fact. And we've heard a lot about superfoods over the last 10 years, you know, packed with antioxidants, the right kind of omega fats, the right kind of protein chains that, you know, are good for heart health and, you know, heal our bodies instead of damaging them and causing inflammation. Hemp has that potential. Not only that, but there's also this other side of industrial hemp that is, you know, there's a soil health component here which I love to educate about because it has a very unique root structure that does many things and can mimic multiple root, multiple species of plants in the way that it interacts with the soil microbes. So we can actually heal our land with industrial hemp in a rotation as well. They've used it in sites like Fukushima in Japan, where they've had, you know, uh, nu nuclear leaks in um, points in 
across the old USSR that had damaged nuclear sites that had had, you know, severe damage done to their groundwater and things like this is part of their reclamation and restoration process. How neat is that? And then that hemp can be harvested after having converted those contaminants into things that are now benign in the plant and and utilized for other purposes, extruded for bioplastics, tucked into things like construction materials that are carbon negative. Like these are things that I, I wish we could get to, you know, to the headlines that is really happening behind the scenes. And I'm, I'm fortunate enough to, to operate in an area that has very passionate people about bringing the industrial hemp message forward and haven't given up hope yet that we'll get there. Yeah, and kind of talking about that, and we actually messaged on Instagram about this a little bit. Um, whenever I did a post about plastic, you are talking about there's hemp biodegradable plastic that can basically replace all plastics we use. Like, Kind of talk to us about that because I think that's going to be huge going forward. Right. So, uh, you know, most of our plastics that we utilize in the stores, extrusion plastics that we would like package lettuce in or, or whatever, you go to your produce department and there's like everything is in plastic or on a foam board wrapped in plastic. <laughs> um, it, and it just it's such a tragedy to see the petrochemical, you know, wastefulness because all of that goes in the trash. Nobody recycles that. I mean, recycling is 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 a few uh, exercise in futility in a lot of communities that don't have the infrastructure to really truly um, recycle. Um, and, you know, I mean, that's been, that's been myth busted multiple times over the last 15 years, you know, it makes us feel good putting out our bins at the end of the road, but it's in a community that doesn't have the ability to actually recycle. So it eventually <laughs> ends up in the landfills anyway, which is a tragedy. But that notwithstanding, when I'm talking about, you know, how hemp could play a role in minimizing some of that, it's talking about the bioplastics. And there's a lot of different crops that use or have bioplastics uses, soybeans and corn and camelina and all kinds of different products. Basically, to define a bioplastic is essentially a polymer that is extracted from a plant and converted into this, whatever this material might be. So we can utilize these polymers that occur naturally in plants. We can also derive them from petroleum. And we've got uh, been accustomed to creating plastic packaging with petroleum-based products. Over the last 20 years, we've seen an interest in bioplastics growing and building. And in small supply chains or in smaller scales, there are implementing combining petrochemical plastic polymers along with bio-derived polymers. Mm, okay. So so it isn't necessarily to just completely replace, but it's certainly a, a supply chain that already exists that we can start feathering in more and more bioplastics that have the ability to, bio, to biodegrade, whereas our petroleum-based bioplastics do not. They do not degrade in the same way as a bioplastic. So they persist in the, in the environment and in the landfills for, for many, many millennia, whereas our bioplastics can degrade faster and can be utilized or reused until they're, you know, until they've lost their, their ability to, to do what we're supposed to do. But that also is going to, you know, it brings up the question of it, our society is kind of convenience driven and those cultural habits of just grabbing and going, I want my apple slices in a little pouch so that I don't have to peel them. 
You know what I'm saying? Like that's part of our disease as Americans. We live in a, a convenience culture. And so we we get the little apple slices in the Happy Meal at McDonald's, you know, the <laughs> convenience food with another piece of plastic that comes along with it, right? So depending on what those plastics total composition of is going to depend on how long it persists in the atmosphere. Bioplastics at large, hemp being one of those opportunities to derive bioplastics, could really be a game changer if we could get wider scale adaption. Problem is we're not growing enough acres of industrial hemp to really be able to prove that theory out um, just because it is has been a really difficult economic environment, right? We keep having these companies that pop up and want to do these great things, but they can't last. They can't fund themselves long enough for this industry to get its sea legs. So again, it goes back to, you know, the, the chicken or the egg conversation. We, we need the supply chain to be there and, and the consumer demand to be there to justify the big players to make the big investments. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah. we can't make the big investment when we only have, you know, 5,000 acres of hemp planted across the U.S. when we need 500,000 acres. <laughs> so, you know, there's this, this huge conundrum. So, you know, there's lots of things to keep developing in that space. But it really gives me hope that, you know, as every day that goes by and as we continue to do these soil health studies related to hemp and just proving, you know, the carbon impact of the hemp crop in the soil, you know, the soil biological improvements that we see with that industrial hemp in a crop rotation. I'm hoping and praying someday that that will be enough to justify it on a farm. And that as that is simultaneously happening, that that supply chain will, will develop enough so that that farmer can sell their industrial hemp to a processor that can create textiles with it, that can create bioplastics with it, that can do these things, you know, create these, um, you know, hemp seeds and for human consumption, right? Like all of these extracting hemp oil for cooking and things like that. All of these things that can be done. We just have to, we just have to keep a, keep the faith and keep riding out the storm on getting this established. <laughs> That's true. And kind of being, I guess, like the trendsetters and being the people that are going to be brave enough to just keep trying it out. And and would you say that a lot of farmers are kind of wanting to do this to kind of diversify their operations and also to kind of, I don't know, maybe be an early industry leader in hemp? Yeah. I, you know, I mean, when, when everything was descheduled um, at the federal level with the 2018 farm bill, there was a 2014 farm bill that um, allowed people to, or, or states to opt in. And there was several states that opted in at that time, you know, California, Colorado, Oregon, a couple other states were part of that first wave in 2014, which is where some of our very first CBD products were coming out of. Right. So, um, but what we didn't realize was that's what was going to be the main focus, right? And it's a very labor-intensive crop. It is largely a horticultural product, not an agricultural product. And all these agricultural farmers were raising their hand and jumping on board saying, oh yeah, I'll give it a try. Not realizing that the amount of handwork that was going to be involved, not realizing how labor-intensive this potentially was going to be and planting seeds that really had no certification. There was no true established filter for quality. And so a lot of farmers got burned and put in huge, huge amounts of capital and money and time and people resources for something that was a bust. And so we have this, this, we have this huge amount of interest in 2019, I guess was the first growing season. A ton of people jumped in, put a, a huge amount of capital towards this. 
had nowhere to sell their stuff, had poor or, or terrible seeds, had an awful experience through that, and then just immediately washed their hands of it as like, a, well, guess we're not doing that. You know, so this is, has created a little bit of, you know, I'll call it hemp PTSD, really. <laughs> yeah, I believe it. That's a good term for it. I like it. <laughs> Why would they want to go back to getting bludgeoned, you know, financially bludgeoned to death over a crop that doesn't have any kind of anything established yet? And now here we finally are in 2022, really starting to see this industrial uses that are more adapted for the agricultural application and are not the horticultural application like CBD is, and being able to be better suited for that ag farmer. So we're, we're working hard to do that. And there's a couple of organizations that I think have done a tremendous job of educating. Uh, Global Hemp Association, you can find them on LinkedIn and Instagram and others that have just done a wonderful job. IND Hemp has been uh, you know, a foundational industry leader in creating markets and working with farmers to make things happen. And Although they're way the heck up in Montana, they've built a tremendous business and have so much heart for making positive change for the for the environment and and for farmers at large. It's very inspiring. I bet it is. And I've interviewed a couple of people so far that have actually like, you know, they've started hemping or not hemping. They started growing hemp if it was either just part of their operation or if they just pivoted the whole thing. And everybody has such interesting stories, like some farmers in their communities, like rolled their eyes or like, how dare you grow hemp? And then other stories of people like actually like stealing hemp plants, thinking they're growing acres and acres of marijuana, which is hilarious. I, I think somebody said they stole like five plants and then they're like, well, that's going to suck for them. They think they're stealing a marijuana plant, but it's just hemp. So yeah. it's, it's really it, interesting what's happening in these kind of early trends. It, it is. And I, you know, some of the, some of the stranger things, you know, I saw a lot of that yeah. with, it, with touching as many hemp farms as I have over the last four years, you know, we've, we've seen a lot of crazy stuff. And one thing that I see now finally settling out is, you know, the final, I guess the final community um, problem that these farmers are facing is they, you know, the right to farm stuff, right? Mm -hmm. No different if I were to put a hog barn in the neighborhood, you know, the neighbors are going to complain about the manure smell. And I still see, I still see some people in communities adjacent to these hemp farms that are still complaining and, you know, raising a fuss over, oh, I can smell, it smells like weed or whatever that is. And it's like, you know, soybeans have a smell, you know, freshly cut alfalfa has a smell you know, all of these things have their own characteristics. It's just not something that you're used to. And so, you know, I think it's just something people are going to have to have to just come to terms with. Eventually, I think we're going to see hemp on a lot of farms and a lot of places, wherever the processors set up camp is where we'll see hemp. You know, I, I, I feel like that small co-op, you know, kind of orientation is what's going to suit that industry best as it gets established. And, you know, that's just going to take more time to get there. But at the end of the day, you know, we, we've got some cool things in the works. I participated in a study last year where we were actually measuring the soil health impact of that hemp, as I mentioned earlier, you know, and improving out the fact that we were sequestering more carbon, that we had, um, a, you know, a beautiful balance between bacterial and fungal activity in the soil and you know, we were we weren't seeing ponding in those fields after we got a couple of crazy pounding rains, you know, and the hemp stood back up after a, you know, a wind event instead of just 
keeling over and, and calling it a season, you know, I mean, we saw some really cool things there that make it, you know, again, I, it just really inspires and encourages me that there's, there's a lot of opportunity there. We, we just gotta, we just kind of keep the faith and not give up. <laughs> yeah. And, and kind of going off of that, I think learning about things like carbon credits is always super interesting. I mean, it's something that the average consumer really doesn't know a whole lot about. And I mean, I'm still like barely scratching the surface, but I mean, to my understanding, at least from what I've learned from farmers, is it correct that to receive carbon credits, it only works towards new land that you're going to be doing um, basically sustainable ag practices on. Is that correct? Well, I guess I'll say yes and no, because mm-hmm. there's, you know, ev- this this space continues to evolve, right? And I think initially, even as, as recent as a year ago, there was this concept that, you know, you're in a 10-year contract and that, you know, you're going to get paid for this and it's only going to be on new practices. And I think a lot of I think a lot of industry partners that are, you know, out there, quote unquote, buying carbon credits are realizing that that's virtually impossible to put on the, bur- the shoulders, you know, that burden on the shoulders of a farmer. Mm. Right. It's an agricultural product. It's not a factory. And and so, you know, we're we have weather factors. What's the implications if a farmer can't produce that crop and has a failure that year, what's the, the the backup plan type of thing, right? So I think it's causing these companies to realize that if we're going to ask the farmer to participate, we need to tailor products that suit the, the natural ebb and flow of farm risk and, and of farming operations. And the other piece of this is kind of defining what specific practices are in the target that was another thing that was very nebulous, right? The, the question is, can you define regenerative farming? Can you define soil health? Well, there's a million ways to define it, but I think we're finally coming to, you know, some, some principles that we all agree upon and knowing that it is a, a journey, not a destination. And I feel like a carbon credit creates a destination oriented, you know, like you have to have the carrot dangling in order to incentivize a farmer to do these practices. <laughs> When in fact, farmers want to do the right thing anyway, mm-hmm. it, it, it isn't necessarily that they need the right carrot to do it. They need they need to be brave enough to, to do that on their own without that. But there are tools out there like, for example, Topsoil. It's a farm data tool um, created by the, the founder of Continuum Ag, Mitchell Hora. And, and the whole concept here is to be able to monitor and, and track those practices and convert those into a regenerative roadmap for you so that you can justify doing this without ever having to sell a carbon credit, right? Like what are the financial impacts of it, of starting this process of using cover crops, of reducing our tillage, of keeping, you know, soil di- or um, root diversity? Like there are dollar values that can be assigned to each of those things. And so maybe you never have to sell a carbon credit to anybody to justify those practices, right? But how do you know if you don't start measuring that piece? So I really, I work very closely with that group. I've had wonderful success with that. And I think that those are the things that we need to focus on instead of getting hyped up about the carbon credit conversation, which there's so, like I said, it's very nebulous. Um, There's a lot of political capital involved in that. And I think that when things become highly politicized like that, it it really makes farmers want to pull away from it because it's very polarizing. And and there's very little true technical information out there that farmers can put their hands on to consume and, and understand better. 
So I think until those things get get sorted out, I think we're going to see less carbon credits being sold and and more, you know, regen roadmaps being established. And then maybe someday we, if we're doing something great, we decide we want to sell it or something comes along that says we have to, then we might be in a different situation. But in the meantime, we've got farmers adapting these practices without that carrot dangling of a carbon credit. I like that. We actually had on Mitchell Hora, um, I think about two years ago, talking about his program and what he's doing. And I mean, it seems like even just hearing from listening to you and listening to Mitchell and just kind of farmers perspectives on carbon credits, it seems like early, early on, it was companies getting credit for what farmers are doing. And yeah. it was just really, really weird. Like, for example, let's say, I don't know, like General Mills, for example, we could they could say like, hey, we bought so-and-so carbon credits, so we're offsetting all of the greenhouse gases that we're doing. It's like, no, you're kind of not really offsetting what you're doing. You're buying somebody else's hard work that they are doing, whether it's a farmer or whatever. And so I think I think that was very interesting. But you brought up some very good shifts that they're doing it regardless of that carrot, regardless of that reward, because... First off, they know it's the right thing to do. They've got to take care of the soil. They've got to take care of the land. And so, yeah, I, I, th- I think it's very interesting to see how the whole perspective towards carbon credits will change. Because I know right now, a lot of businesses, a lot of big time corporations are thinking this is like the next big, big thing. And it's really all they kind of have to do to decrease their, carbons, um, their carbon emissions. So it'll be very interesting to see what happens. So I think you've got a very good perspective on that. Yeah, and I think it's I think it's something that, you know, if, if people want to continue to educate themselves about how it's working, you know, a lot of this is being a lot of this information and a lot of the origin of why these heart, these international corporations are pressing for this is because the pressure at that level to do business or transact business in specific countries is now being assigned a carbon credit score. Right. So these companies, if they want to do business in a specific country need to be able to say we are carbon neutral or we have purchased enough carbon offsetting credits to qualify to do business in your country. This is happening. And I don't believe that the consumers that are buying food products are aware of this. And by and large, farmers have not been really well educated in this either. So, you know, there's things on that on that global scale that are, are influencing this, like I said, and it's becoming a highly politicized movement which, in my opinion, as a farmer, my husband and I farm our own farm here, kind of makes you want to pull back away from that. I'm not trying to be part of your movement. I'm trying to do what's best for my farm. I'm feeding my family with my farm income. So, you know, like, I, I'm all for taking care of everybody else, but it, I also have to prioritize my soil needs to be healthy to hand this farm down to my children. And my, my farm needs to adequately provide for my family today. So those two being my priorities here, you know, your need to do business in a specific country. So you, therefore you want to buy my carbon credits isn't high on my priority list, maybe, you know, and, and I think that that's a perspective that a lot of farmers share. If you sit around and ask them what they know about carbon credits, it's going to come down to this. There's not enough information and we don't trust these companies are, are going to follow through. A hundred percent. Yeah, there's not enough info. And we don't really know if those if those companies are actually going to pay the credits, if they're going to do what they say they're going to do, because it's so early. It's yeah. I don't know. It's just so weird. I mean, when I first heard about it, I was like, that seems a little sketchy and kind of like a fad. So I'm glad it's not, you know, 
I guess, kind of changing the ball game. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Um, it de- it's definitely evolving still. That's a fact. Oh, yeah, for real. Um, <laughs> well, Chrissy, this has been awesome chatting with you about all things agronomy. Um, you've got a really good online presence. Your Instagram's great. So if people want to follow you, learn more about what you're doing, learn more about um, agronomy and all the good stuff you're you're up to, where can they go to follow you? So you can find me on all the social media platforms at Crop Scout Christili. Um, that's my Insta handle. You can find me on Facebook that way um, or Christy L. Apple on Facebook. Also, I have multiple presences there. Um, LinkedIn, I'm all over the place and I love sharing my journey. Um, I love, uh, you know, today is Tomato Tuesday <laughs> as we're recording. So I've been all day in the tomato greenhouses helping, uh, you know, tomato farmers do the best with their soils and with their fruit. I'm always up to something different and I love to share my journey. So I'd love to have you guys along. Yeah. I mean, you do such a good job sharing like what you're doing, kind of the research that you're doing. So I think that's super fun and I love it when farmers or just any sort of professionals in agriculture do that. I think it's so cool and it's such a great tool for consumers to see like, not only like all that goes into it, but also like just countless careers that are out there that like the normal person might not be aware of. And so that's super fun. But I mean, we appreciate it. Thanks so much for sharing your story and teaching us a thing or two about agronomy. We'll have to visit with you soon to see what more developments you're up to. Thanks so much, Trevor, for having me on your show. Thank you to the audience for listening and um, we'll see you in the field. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Farm Traveler podcast. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it. Consider leaving a five-star review if you're on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to. We have new episodes every week. Can't wait to see you next week. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you later. Bye.